DMV is, Montgomery County, just lay it on them, all right? So think of something. When you get bored while I'm talking today, think of something you can say to them that will convince them to come here. Uh, so we're going to start a new series today, um, and i got to give a lot of credit to a man named Greg Boyd. He's a pastor, theologian. Uh, he's a lot smarter than me, and he wrote a really uh, incredible book called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's only like 1,800 pages. But he also wrote another book that is the shorter version of that called Cross Vision, and it's about 250 pages. I'm going to be borrowing generously from that today. So if uh, so, much of what we're going to be studying over the coming six weeks was inspired by some of the academic and theological work uh, he has done. And this is like a 10-year journey for him, and so we get to kind of feed off of, of that journey that he went on. So we just started uh, the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is a six-week season of lament, uh, of acknowledging the death and crucifixion of Christ, but in the midst of that season, actually embracing the darkness and the injustice and the, uh, the, the lament and the sadness and the violence of the crucifixion. It's something that, in our faith, it's meant to weigh on us. It is meant to catch our attention, and this is the season that we allow that to happen. And, I mean, just this past Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday... We experienced another horrific, violent act uh, in our country, and it's it's haunting. And so, um, I, I want to just begin. Even though uh, you know we, we're going to dive into God's word here, I, I really want to pause and just pray because um, it is a season of lament. And like many of you, I'm lamenting what's happening in our in our culture, the heartbreak and the violence. So I just want to pause and let's pray together, so that our thoughts um, are guided towards that. Lord, we saw it in many experienced hell on earth this past week. Uh, we've wept, we're angry, we are heartbroken. But Lord, we cling to the sliver of light. We know truth, love, and restoration can break through this abyss. Lord, make it so. Heal the broken, strengthen the weak, peace shattered hearts back together, deliver justice. Come, Lord Jesus, and wipe every tear from every eye. Sew this world back together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we, uh, we begin a new series that we're calling The Crucifixion of God. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend six weeks remembering the cross and allowing the lens of the cross to inform our view of Scripture. Uh, so if you've ever asked questions, uh, how do I read the Bible? Like if you're, if you're fairly new to Christianity, you're like, okay, how do you read this thing? Because it's a library. It's not a book. All right? it's, it's a lot of books put together over a lot of different years written by a variety of different authors in, variety, in a variety of different circumstances. So it is extremely diverse. And anybody who tells you that reading the Bible is easy, they don't know what they're talking about. All right? Let's just be real. It is a, it, it's heavy. It's dense. It's ancient. And it's Eastern, and we're Western. So there are a lot of different things we have to work through, and we have to allow the cross to inform that. So if you've ever wondered how to read the Bible, or if you've grown up in church, and you're like, I don't buy how that's you read the Bible. Like if you've been a little disenfranchised with uh, a certain perception of Scripture, or how to reconcile certain things that you read in Scripture, this is a series for you. We're going to dive, six-week deep dive, into how to read Scripture how do you reconcile the New Testament and the Old Testament? How does this all actually fit together? So this is a series, and this is the season where we get to ask and dwell in those tough questions. And there is tension. Uh, there, there is, and we're going to find it here in just a second when we start reading the scripture. Um, 
there's, there's tension to be explored, but will we go on the journey of doing that and seeing what God has to say to us about his word? Um, we're going to start in the book of Numbers. You probably haven't been there in a while. Uh, Numbers is on page, we're going to be on page 115 if you want to grab a Bible. And I would encourage you to follow along because this is intense. Um, it's going to be 18 verses of Numbers chapter 31. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. I think it starts on the bottom of page 115. <coughs> So bottom right of page 115, Numbers 31. Just a little context here. You may have heard of Moses. This, this story involves him. And if you've grown up in any kind of a church environment, Moses is kind of sold as a biblical hero. Um, we, we think about him parting the Red Sea, writing down the Ten Commandments, leading uh, the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, out of oppression and slavery. So he did some good stuff. This is some bad stuff. You're going to see the other side of Moses here in Numbers 31. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, who took with him articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. They fought against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Baor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. They burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled as well as all their camps. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captives, spoils, and plunder to Moses and Eleazar the priest and the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds who returned from the battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. Oh my gosh. Have you ever read that? That's intense. It's no wonder atheists like Richard Dawkins says this about the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infantile, genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously capriciously malevolent bully it's a lot of big words richard likes to use those to intimidate but you read numbers 31 and you read what dawkins says about it or about the god of the old testament you're like yeah it's kind of something we need to think about but then you read words like in romans chapter 8 what paul writes about god verses 37 through 39 he says no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us 
For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's verses like this that inspire people like Brennan Manning to write, God is not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. The Father of Jesus loves all, no matter what they do. Which is it? Is it Dawkins God or is it Manning's God? Is it Numbers 31 or is it Romans 8, what Paul writes? These are the types of tensions that we live in in our faith that we have to acknowledge and we have to reconcile or believe that we can actually reconcile that differing viewpoint. So for starters, we need to embrace the cognitive tension we experience. I mean, think about the weirdness that you would feel if someone grabbed the Bible who was not a believer and they were questioning your faith and they shoved Numbers 31 in front of you and said, explain that. That would be pretty awkward, but we have to live there as Christians and and explore and allow the cross to shed light on the dark parts of Scripture in order to inform our faith and figure out, okay, what exactly was God doing? Is he doing? Is he going to do? And faith in Christ, if you haven't been here yet, faith in Christ is the place where certitude goes to die. That's Christianity. We have to embrace living in tension and in mystery. And if we argue and think that we've got it all figured out, that is not good news. That's not attractive. It's repulsive. What people are attracted to, or a big aspect of God that we're attracted to and that others are attracted to, is the mystery of following that kind of a God and that kind of a love. So we need to explore these uncomfortable aspects of our faith. And we can't just skip over the Old Testament. We have to, we have to, it, it is part of Scripture. It is inspired. It, it is authoritative. And so we have to understand, okay, what's happening here? Cheryl Bridges-Jones, who's a professor, she said, the most mature Christians live in paradox. The stench of death and the fragrance of life, suffering and joy, groans and praise. They embody patient, hopeful waiting for the age to come. And over the next six weeks of the Lenten season, we're going to ask you to embrace the paradox of your faith because we've got some reconciling to do. Um, you know, Numbers 31 and Romans 8, amongst many. Um, I don't know if I said this earlier, but the Numbers 31 verse, there's over 30 references of such things happening in the Old Testament. It's not just a one-and-done phenomenon. And we're going to read different ones every week to explore the tension of what's happening here. So to take the next step, we have to, um, we have to acknowledge and imagine that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And if you're willing to embrace the tension and explore the depths of Scripture, he can guide us. He's the tool that will guide us into the library of the Bible and understanding that. As we do that, we have to avoid two very popular missteps. Uh, it's the misstep that Dawkins takes. I find it interesting that many evangelical Christians and atheists read the Bible the same way, and it's both faulty. They both view it, uh, what we'll talk about, as like a flat reading of Scripture, that it all carries equal authority. That's called modernism. That springs out of the Enlightenment a few hundred years ago. And that's where kind of evangelical America has been living for a long time. So we have to avoid what I would call the misstep of modernism. Uh, Scripture is not meant to be viewed scientifically. It's not an Excel spreadsheet. It does not fit together perfectly so all the rows and columns add up and it just is a perfect little puzzle. That's how we want it to be. 
but that's not how it was designed to be read. So we have to understand it's not a math problem. It's not a science. It's a story. It's a narrative. The other misstep that's been gaining steam in our culture is the, what I would call the misstep of postmodernism, which is reading scripture through personal experience. So we view the, the, through scripture, through the lens of the, 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 the biggest lens we have a tendency to read it through is our own personal experience. But we're not the main point of the story. So if we're using our lens as the most authoritative lens to view scripture through, it's going to be skewed and it's going to be flawed because we're not God. The central point of scripture is Jesus, not us. So the next step on the journey, avoiding those two kind of holes to step in, is Jesus. Specifically, the season of Lent, Jesus hanging on the cross is the key to unlocking scripture. The crucifixion is the climax of scripture. And this is the lens by which we make sense of the Bible. What about his birth? What about his teachings, his miracles, his resurrection? Yes, they are sacred. So as I say this, I don't want you to hear that I'm dismissing those. They're sacred and they're authoritative but we can't read scripture in a flat manner and in a static manner. So the reason I bring up plain, like some people tout the plain reading of scripture, like just read it and do what it says. All right, that's kind of like the self-help manual view of scripture. That's not how it's meant to be viewed. It's not meant to be viewed as a flat reading, but it is the most common scriptural interpretation of the American church. And to put it gently, it's wrong. It's not correct. So we need to understand how, what, what's the opposite or what, what's the, the correct way to view Scripture if it's not flat. I would call it like reading Scripture in a narrative arc. All right? I'm an English major. So you've got rising action. You've got the climax. You've got falling action. You've got the resolution. Th- these are the, this is how a narrative is put together. And we see this through Scripture. So to prove this really quickly, uh, we're going to show how... Scripture is a story. So let's start in the Old Testament, because that's kind of where we've begun. 700 years before Jesus lived, there was a prophet named Isaiah, and he wrote about Jesus' arrival, and he also wrote about the man named John the Baptist, who preceded Jesus and kind of introduced Jesus to everybody. John was the prophet, and Isaiah, 700 years before John was born, Isaiah wrote about him and predicted what he would do. So Isaiah in chapter... um, 40 verse 3, he says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. So the first question is, well, how do we know Isaiah is talking about John the Baptist? Well, 700 years later, one of Jesus' disciples and biographers, Matthew, confirmed this. In Matthew chapter 3 verse 3, he says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. He quotes Isaiah. He's saying, this is the guy Isaiah wrote about 700 years ago. Then Jesus witnesses, so we've got Isaiah, then we've got Matthew confirming the narrative leading to John the Baptist. Then we have Jesus witnessing to John's greatness amongst prophets. In Matthew chapter 14, Chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So the narrative, the rising action continues. And then Jesus raises himself above John. In John chapter 5, verse 36, he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Jesus says, I am bigger i'm weightier than john 
And note the word finished. This is what gives us a clue to the climax of Scripture. What is it that Jesus has to finish? When will we have the finish line, the full vision, the full revelation, the full picture of God? In John chapter 19, we see it with Jesus hanging on the cross as he's dying. It says, Later, knowing that everything now had been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. He was referring to John 5, those words he had shared earlier of what he came to finish. He meant, this is the finish line, me on the cross. Everything we need to know about God was revealed on the cross. It is the climax of the story. It is the peak of the narrative. And from that peak, we look down on both past, present, and future. This is how we see the world, from the cross. And I didn't say that. Jesus did. That's the narrative arc of Scripture. Everything in Scripture points to that moment. All Scripture is divinely inspired. But that doesn't mean that all Scripture carries the same level of authority. I didn't say this. Jesus did. And not, it's unfortunate that I don't think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of Christians who would not agree with that, even though Jesus said it, and he points us to that truth. And the reason I'm harping on it and quoting like, I don't know, 82 verses this morning. <laughs> uh, buckle up, we're not done. Um, it's important because of how transformational this is for us individually, communally, and for our world. This is truth that we really have to let settle in on us. It is a big deal. It is a big change. There's more evidence in the New Testament um, that Jesus' authority and power was greater than the Old Testament. In fact, there are parts of the Old Testament that don't even line up with the ethics and the teachings and the actions and the life of Christ. There are dozens of examples, if not hundreds. I've never counted them, but there's at least dozens of examples. One, I'll give you one, because it's so obvious. Leviticus 24, 19, 20 says, If a man injures his neighbor... Just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. But Jesus said in Matthew five thirty-eight through 40, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to be sure, uh, to, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. It's imperative to understand the narrative arc of Scripture and the authority of Christ's crucifixion. We have to grasp this. So what happened? So when we read, holy cow, when we read Numbers 31, if Jesus directly contradicts part of the Old Testament, why did the stories and the themes of the writers of the Old Testament differ sometimes with the actions and teachings of Christ? Why, how did that happen? And we're going to explore that deeply in the coming weeks, but I want to give you guys a little appetizer to consider um, why they might be off. Um, I just want to say this. If there's more truth to unpack here. Um, there's, a, there's another line that, that is fed uh, in, in evangelical America, and I'm not saying this out of cynicism. I'm saying this because I love the truth so much more. Um, the Bible is not inerrant. It's not. And it doesn't, it, that does not give it less authority. We have to accept this. Our authority and the only authority lies in Christ. 
That's why I'm harping on the cruciform lens of Scripture. It does not take away from the divine inspiration of the rest of Scripture, but it does not make everything perfect. We only see perfection in Christ. So how did this happen? How do we read Numbers 31 and Romans 8 and Leviticus and, G- and Matthew 5? Like, how do these reconcile? Um, the first thing I would point out is if you get a chance, I'm not going to, we got enough scripture to quote today, but read Genesis 3. Genesis 2, everything's perfect. Humanity is in perfect communion with God. Everything's, it's like heaven on earth. And then Genesis 3, Satan seeps in in the form, the symbolic form of the serpent. Um, and I'm not going to even get into a literal six-day creation. That's a, we'll get into that another day. Um, I'll just say this. Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, are not a scientific story about how their world was made. It's a poem, all right? We'll just step, say it there. It's, it's meant to be symbolic. The first thing the serpent did was pollute the image of God in the minds of humanity. So from that point forward in Genesis 3, everything was clouded or distorted. And Hebrews 1 mentions this. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3 The writer says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So I want to point out that phrase, various ways. It says God spoke to our ancestors through prophets and many times and in various ways. The Greek word for that phrase is polymeros, which means glimpses of truth. It means they didn't have everything. They didn't have the whole truth. They had glimpses. It was clouded. It was distorted. We know this because the New Testament speaks to that and because Genesis 3 points out the flaw, points out the fact that human beings had become clouded in their understanding of God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Greek word for truth, aletheia, literally means unveiled and uncovered. It means the truth is no longer distorted or clouded. It's a, Jesus is the full revelation of God. There's no more hiddenness. There's no more cloudiness. There's no more distortion. There's no more mistakes. He's here. So the Old Testament writers, while they were divinely inspired... They were only catching glimpses of God. And they were clouded and distorted in their understanding. And that might freak some of you out that I say, (laughs) wait a second, are you saying that? But now we have Jesus, God unveiled and uncovered. So we're not going to go through the numbers verse like line by line and and, and figure that out today. Um, (coughs) But we do have a chance to reconcile the Old Testament, the New Testament, the life and teachings of Christ and the crucifixion with what's happening in the Old Testament. Um, now we have a clue why. why. Why is there violence and genocide and polygamy and war and pillaging and us versus them in the Old Testament? Like, What is happening? That And they're all claiming it in the name of God. Like, What is going on? Well, now we have a clue. We have our first clue in the journey. They were clouded and distorted of their understanding of God. And that's our first clue of how the crucifixion is kind of shining light on the path into the Old Testament. So in the coming weeks, we're going to study the culture of the ancient Near East and how that played into the writer's um, angles, specific passages about polygamy and genocide and violence against women and children. We're going to talk about the Great Flood, Noah's Ark, the parting of the Red Sea, mass death, 
and more. It's going to be a real fun time. All right, really jolly journey into the Old Testament. Uh, I really do believe it will be because our exploration uh, of the Old, Tes- Old Testament using the cross is going to be end with hope and with joy because what happens after the cross, after death? Life, resurrection, joy, hope, the fruits of the Spirit, love. We will be able to reconcile what we read in the Old Testament with the truth that God loves us unconditionally. That's the conclusion. Now we get to figure out how we come to that conclusion. Let's pray.